Hi, I'm your host, James Trewick, and you're listening to The Art of Inquiry. In this episode, we sit down with Dr. Simon Kennedy and discuss history and the way in which the past impacts both the present and the future. This episode has been brought to you by the Millis Institute. More information about that at the end of the episode. If you do enjoy the episode, please make sure to share it with your friends and leave us a review on Apple. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Hi, you're welcome. It's good to be on, James. Uh, so your, your job title is at the Mills Institute. You're a lecturer in intellectual history. Uh, so can you explain a little bit about what that means? Are you just a historian? What what, what do you deal with? Yeah, so I guess my, my tra- by trade I am a historian. Uh, my doctorate's in history and all, most of my scholarship is in historical questions. So, yeah, so I, I am a historian, but... I lecture in, I'm a lecturer in intellectual history because that reflects my uh, role and my interest in my teaching, in teaching about ideas, but also about the past as well. So the concern that the Millis Institute has for intellectual history and that way of, of thinking through uh, the big questions that we deal with is related to both history and philosophy. So I teach both philosophy and a bit of history and theology as well. So that's I guess that's where intellectual history is, is fundamentally a concern about ideas in the past and the context for those ideas arising. And so that, that's reflective of what I do at the Millis Institute in my teaching. Okay, that makes perfect sense. It's, it's almost like as an a intellectual historian, you have to both be a philosopher, a theologian, uh, yeah. a literary critic. You have to have, because in understanding the history of things, you kind of understand the things as well. History isn't, it's, it's the history of something. It's not history as its own topic. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. My subject, the subject, of, yeah, the subject that I'm studying uh, is usually philosophical or th- and theological and so I have to understand the theology and the philosophy and then I have to be the best historian I can be in order to properly understand those things. So in one sense, I've kind of got a pretty hard gig, but then I don't because it's actually heaps of fun. Yeah. So the first question that I want to ask is what is history? And because I know that as an intellectual historian, it's a bit of a different field. What does intellectual history deal with itself as well? I, we all have a general conception of history when we think of history, but it'd probably be better to just nail down what that actually is yeah good I, I think that's right when we talk about history often we we sort of know what we mean but it can be really helpful to define what we're talking about there's a british british philosopher called michael oakshot who i think deals with this question quite well in his um his essays on history he says he states quite rightly that history is an ambiguous term so even though we kind of know what we're talking about we don't really there's really two common senses that history is used um, one is that it's basically just the past. When we say, oh, that's that's history, what are we saying? We're saying that's something that's already happened, it's already done and dusted, it's in the past. That's sort of the grand total of everything that's ever happened in the past. When we're talking about history today, I think what we're talking about is a particular kind of inquiry where if someone is doing history, they are doing a historical inquiry, they are looking into what the events of the past and they're trying to ascertain what actually happened. And so that's what a historian does. Uh, and so it's a kind of it's a it's also a mode of thinking. I think you can think historically as well, and Nokeshot draws that out too. But what we're interested in primarily, I think, is the kind of inquiry of history. What what is history? Well, it's a mode of inquiry, and we're looking at the past and the things that have happened in the past. So if you look, I've looked at. Well, I tried to find a a civilization or a community that wasn't deeply concerned with their history and their their stories. So, I mean, you look to go to anywhere in, in the earth, as far as I could find, I couldn't find a single civilization that didn't have 
someone that had the role of a historian or a storyteller or something like that. And so I, I wanted to ask, why is it that every civilization seems to have history as a core pillar of its structure? It's a really interesting uh, question to ask because you're right, I don't think there is a civilization or a culture which has truly neglected history. Part of part of the reason for that I think is that we're all acutely aware of history. We've we live in the present, but one second before that is the past. And so we know that there is a his- history, there has been there has been a past and and we know that in some way the past explains what something about the present. So we're naturally interested in it because it actually affects what we're doing. It affects why we're doing it. It affects who we are. We know that existentially, existentially and experientially, we, 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 we know this. In terms of uh, why does every culture or society have some form of t- retelling the past? And, and there are different ways that this comes about and we, you know, we, we might want to explore this more. But, but, but there could be storytelling or myth or the kind of history that we do today in the West is fairly sort of pure narratival history and uh, based on facts. Those things seem to be important to cultures, I think, because the past, as I've already hinted at, um, knowing the past gives us an understanding of why things are the way they are today. And they also give us a sense of our identity, both as a corporate culture and as individuals. So people and cultures are interested in the past and in history, and this is a ubiquitous thing because... Without history, we don't really know who we are or why we're here. Uh, so I guess then the, the follow-up question from that is, and you kind of hinted it at the very end of your last sentence, so what happens when people neglect history? So they, they don't know, they don't have a, a structure to put themselves within, but is there anything else that happens uh, if someone doesn't know the history or the civilization that they're mm-hmm. in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there are two things that come to mind. Uh, one is that, if we neglect history, uh, and there, I guess you could neglect history not not necessarily for not 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 in the sense of denying that history exists, but you can neglect history just because you're not interested in it, you don't want to think about it. I think that can create hubris in cultures and in individuals. Uh, they can become quite prideful because they think, well, we're the most important. This is we're, we're the ones who are solving all these problems for the first time, and so on and so forth. And I think that that's a, his, a culture that lacks historical. Uh, consciousness can fall into that trap for sure. The other thing that can happen is if we neglect history, we can fall into some very, very dangerous territory where history can then be done for the wrong reasons. So if responsible people don't do responsible history, irresponsible people will do irresponsible history. Someone's going to tell the history. I think that's inevitable. As you just said, every culture does it. So I think it's I think it's important that the right people do it for the right reasons. Otherwise, as has happened in some places like Nazi Germany and um, as has also occurred in other, sort of, I guess, totalitarian societies and other less, I guess, even other less sinister forms of society, history can be used for evil ends and for the wrong ends. So I think it's best, it's better for people not to neglect history so that doesn't happen as well. Yeah, that's good. It even shows that history obviously has a key part in forming the identity because if it's used in the wrong way, people very quickly start aligning themselves with very bad ideologies. And it's all based upon not them. It Obviously, it affects them now, but if you have to look at the way that 
what they're actually relying upon their identity is built upon a past it's built upon a national past or it's built upon a, a familial past i mean everyone yeah everyone is interacting with the history every moment that they act as an individual and it also shows that i mean there's a lot of things that we presume to be true or that we presume have been proven and mm. a lot of the times uh, if you don't understand if you don't go back to the root of where that argument came from or or anything like that then you're actually missing out on knowing whether that thing is foundationally solid as an ideology i mean people people always use the argument of communism they say oh communism you can look at it now and and it seems bad but if you look back to the foundations oh, it was a good I- idea and the question well you got to actually look into the history of that as well and even the way that it plays out in history there's that that's a historical look into a societal political regime mm. uh, and so if you didn't have the historical perspective on that mm. You, you can't really make a value judgment at all. I think it's a good point. The the communism example is a bit of a cliche, but it's actually a really helpful example because that's an, that's a, actually a great example of the misuse of history as well. Uh, there are some historians. There are very few historians now who, in fact, there are probably none who 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 seriously deny that. Say, for example, Stalin was um, a really terrible political leader who but 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 there are people who deny that he was driven by for example by marxism and by leninism um but i think that historically uh, i'm reading solzhenitsyn's gulag archipelago at the moment and he is giving a detailed history of one particular one particular i guess method of terror that was used against the population in russia and that kind of history exposes the historical fallacies that are often brought up about communist Russia. So history is really important because it does uncover those. It kind of turns over the rock, and all every you see all the horrible stuff underneath. Otherwise, you can just paper, you can paper over it, or you can just not look under the rock and ignore all the problems. To come back to something you said a little bit earlier as well, I mean, in terms of how we shape our own identities, we we can't make up our own identity. We can't sort of just manifest identities out of nowhere. We're historically embedded creatures. And so our identities are inherently connected to the past. And so that's another, like you said, if we, if we ignore our past and just, I suppose, sui generis, you know, create our own identities, um, then that's really problematic as well because it ignores something that's fundamental about us as people. So there's similar kind of issues. Yeah, ignoring the past is a real problem. To further that as well, what you were just saying, I mean, if we, if we don't understand anything about yesterday, then we have to presume everything about our current situation right all of our all the values that we hold all of our opinions all of our feelings all seem to come to this same equilibrium of of authenticity because we've got no no past to refer them to Mm. so the fact that maybe maybe this is uh, a very individual kind of uh, example so it doesn't it might not necessarily work perfectly one one to one but say you and i have been best friends for 20 years Mm. and then i forget all of that and then i meet you for the first time and when i meet you 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 give me a punch on the shoulder but i didn't like that today and so now i think you're my worst enemy and so because i didn't know anything about my assumptions before then all of a sudden the value of you being my worst enemy is the exact same level as the value of oh i liked having toast for bread like for breakfast this morning and so it overrides right 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 yeah yeah and that's that's right and even though it is it isn't like it's an absurd example but it's actually a really good illustration of the problem yeah i think that's that's very helpful the next question i want to ask is people say history does and does not repeat itself so when people usually say uh history doesn't repeat itself they're usually meaning a very literal sense like 
historical events do not happen again and again. We're not in a, a 100 year cycle where every 100 years the same person is born and they do the same things in the same places. Obviously, societies change. And so the, the people then argue, well, what's the point of history if societies change? And so we're not doing the same things we were doing 200 mm-hmm. to 2000 years ago. So why do we need to know what they were doing? Mm-hmm. So I want to know uh, why, why we do still need to have that historical perspective and what people, I want to know what people really mean when they say history does repeat itself. Mm. So I think what, I think what we mean when we say that history does repeat itself is basically what the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes says when he says, there's nothing new under the sun, all of the problems, all of the things that we're dealing with yeah, in our lives are fundamentally the same as what people were dealing with 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 years ago. So, so history repeats itself because what, what, the question is, what is the stable factor across history? The stable factor is human nature. Human nature does not change. We are not different to the people who lived 6,000 years ago. And so hence why... Uh, we can say that even though there has never been uh, a Scott Morrison government in the past, there have been lots of people exactly or very similar to Scott Morrison. Or, you know, to take a more extreme example, even though there has never been another previous Adolf Hitler in the past, we can look back and see all of the tyrants of history and say, do you know what? It's the same problem. It's the same issue that recurs over history. So the particular events, you're right, the particular events, events don't repeat. That every historical event is actually actually unique. That's the proper sense, the proper use of the word unique. Like it, those things are not replicated. However, human nature is the same, and so the kinds of crises and problems, the kinds of triumphs of the human spirit, sort of all, sort of do repeat themselves in that sense. I like that. I agree with that. I think. That is based upon there's a few presumptions even to assume that human nature is always the same. Presumes that uh, man is more than a bundle of perceptions because if he was a bundle of perceptions, uh, if you put him on a different planet, he would act completely different because he'd have different perceptions mm-hmm. of everything. Uh, so I think if anyone else was to agree with it, that's that's an assumption that they have to take on board. So the the next question I have then is. You've, you've said you talked about history being used like in Nazi Germany as a way of forming the identity of a nation. So that, that was a great example. And so I wanted to know, does history ever have its own, its own purpose or is it always used as a tool for something? So can you analyze history? Yeah, can, is history ever used for its own sake just to understand history or is it always used as a tool to go beyond history? Really interesting question. I think that history can, generally speaking, be done without a, uh, an agenda, I guess, if that's what you're asking. There doesn't have to be an ideological drive behind it. However, no historian is carrying out the task of history for no reason. They're always interested in something for a particular reason. So there's always a motivation behind it. There's always – everyone's biased. Everyone comes at things – from a subjective perspective. The idea that the historian can be perfectly valued, can do their, their task without without bringing preconceived values to the task, is, I think is is not true and not possible. Having, having said that, not all history has to be ideological. For example, uh, if I want to investigate the, the history of road building in Queensland, 
there's no particular reason why that has to be ideological. I think you can carry out that fairly in a fairly straightforward way without it being a political, without having a political agenda or without having some kind of um, sinister agenda behind it. But then there are some things which kind of get to the core more of national identity or personal identity. And so there might be someone, for example, who works in uh, queer studies at a university and they themselves might be queer or lesbian or gay. And naturally, they're very interested in the history of their own movement and of their own, of the people, the group of people they identify with. That's fine. I'm really interested in the history of Reformed Christianity because I'm a Reformed Christian. So that, that kind of thing always crops up. I don't think that's too much of an issue. I think what the historian has to guard against, though, is being caught up in political ideology and political movements and so on. And I think that that is, that can become sinister and that can lead to very bad history, as we've seen in the past. I really like the uh, example of the road building of Queensland because what it actually shows is that there's a, a part of history that, you know, recording the history of road building in Queensland doesn't really serve to tell us much about human nature or to help form our identity. Mm-hmm. But what does it help us to do? I think it, it has another a purpose that can be played and maybe 200 years down the road, uh, pun not intended, we end up looking at Queensland roads and we go, well, why is it that these have been yeah, made in this way? Right. And so then history plays a very right. maybe mediocre and not so grandiose purpose, but yeah. it's still a purpose to help inform our decisions going yeah, forward. Yeah. So I, I actually thought at first I went, that's a weird example. But no, it made sense. It makes sense. The next question I've got, and you, you kind of started talking about it a little bit there as well. So I want to really delve into it. It's how can we trust our perspective on history and uh, how do we understand our interpretations of history okay yeah the the question of how we can trust our own our own work as historians is a really tricky one because uh as i've already said we, we always bring biases to the table and and preconceived values if i'm investigating a particular figure from the past who i value and agree with you know an obvious example for me and someone who i've worked on is uh, john calvin I suppose my uh, intuitive response to finding something very bad out about a figure like that is to not necessarily mention it. But that would be the wrong thing to do because it's actually not good history. History is a discipline and and the discipline... The word discipline is important. We are actually... As historians, we're... We're carrying out a practice that is disciplined by a certain set of kind of method and approach, and so even if we if we if we find ourselves bi- being heavily biased in a particular direction, the fact that we are um, operating in a discipline, history is a discipline, and as a discipline, it comes with a particular set of practices, methods, uh, accepted ways of carrying out study and scholarship and investigation of the past. Those accepted methods, practices, and ways of approaching historical problems actually help us to avoid ideological bias, religious bias, personal bias. So, yes, of course, we all have uh, particular biases, and every historian can't really get past that. But that's why, um, over time, the practice of history has been refined, the discussion of historical methodology and 
the different ways that the historian carries out their craft are, are ways that the uh, historian has been able to, I suppose, discipline themselves in their practice and prevent uh, the problem that you've raised, which is that of whether we have the right perception or not. The other thing is that we're not doing it in isolation. So as a as a practicing historian, I publish my findings for other historians to read and for people in and for other in other public venues and for other for other people to read. And, that, and I'm opening myself up to critique and for people to refine what I'm doing and say, hey, that's wrong. I've got evidence to contradict that. So there are some ways that, that, that practicing and professional historians can still, I guess, uh, work around their own biases, which are, which are frankly inevitable and, and, and we have to, to deal with them somehow. Do you think that when historians read the historical works of people from the past that they uh, understand that there's probably a bit of bias or do you think they think that there's no bias? Like when you approach someone, obviously you have to give context to who they are, what were they writing for, who were they writing for, but is it generally taken that ah, there's probably more to the story than this text tells us? Is there, any, is there ever any time when you don't approach history like that? There are probably, there's probably something that that's, a, that's a, an important point because I think that we, we should approach texts from the past with the assumption that this is not the whole story we don't have the whole story here because there's it's inevitable that as you go on investigating and digging you'll find things that might refine your understanding of the text or the person's claim in the historical text might be contradicted or brought into question by something by some other piece of evidence yet of course you you assume that this is not necessarily the final answer however the there is a real problem with having what can be called a hermeneutic of suspicion if you just approach every single text with the suspicion that this person has a an agenda and that they're trying to all they're trying to do is further their own interests and their own ideologies and that that should be the primary way that we read this text is problematic in and of itself because it's uh i suppose it undermines the okay i guess it undermines the the humanness of the text uh, it assumes that we are the objective judge that stands over the stands over history and can look back and see everyone's questionable motivations. But in fact, we can't really, and we ourselves, as we've just explored, have our own questionable motivations. And so we always have to be careful that we're not blindly assuming that what the historical actor says is true and perfect and pure. While at the same time, we shouldn't come to the table with this hermeneutic of suspicion. If you presume that they're not telling the whole story, then what you're really doing is giving your beliefs a kind of defense or a scapegoat, kind of like, oh, well, you know, I think that uh, this has been so, and it must have been so for all of history, even if it's never recorded. They're only saying that because they don't want to record it. Uh, so it, it does, yeah, as you're right, it's, it's too suspicious, that's too critical. The next question then, and it kind of does play off that as well. Uh, since history is spun by those that win the wars or are the dominant uh, power during that time, does this taint the accuracy of the written record? What does that really mean? I mean, it's a very similar question to what I just asked mm. them, but how do we really grapple with the fact that history is written by the victors and those that are dominant at the time? It is a, it is a reality that historians have to face, that if you... If you look at the history of pretty well any event in the past, the people who are writing the history tend to be, or the, or the people who have written accounts of it or who have written authoritative commentaries on it, tend, tend to be um, 
those who are the victors, as you said, those who are in a, dom- a position of power or a position of dominance. I'm not sure whether the phrase that history is... Actually, the phrase history is spun is probably not a bad one because at the end of the day, when we look at history, we have to look at it as if we look at a historical account or um, historical texts, it is actually a perspective, one particular subjective perspective on an event or on an issue. And it's okay for that to be a valid, helpful perspective, but we might find a different perspective on it. And the, the perspective we usually read is that of the victors. One reason why... Uh, something like intellectual, the, dis- the uh, sort of subdiscipline of intellectual history is helpful is because, l- let me give you an example. Typically in the past, historians would have looked at the writings in the 16th century, say they were looking at the history of political thought. They looked at the writings in the 16th century and they would have read uh, John Locke's two treatises on government and they would have said that this is the authoritative account of the Glorious Revolution of 1688. And for those of you who don't know what that is, you can, you're going to be searching it on Wikipedia as I'm talking, so I'm not going to bother explaining what it is. But there are actually lots of other texts around Locke's text which, don't tell, a, which tell a different story about that period, the works of political thought, and some of them tell almost the same one, but they're not famous like Locke's are. Intellectual history presumes that every text arises in the context of other texts and other events. And so when... As an intellectual historian, I'm actually interested in the losers, the historical losers. I'm interested in the obscure, not because, not just for obscurity's sake, but because I genuinely think it actually tells us something of value about the uh, about the past and about events in the past. So there are forms of, and there's a, there's a movement in the historical discipline called history from below, which looks at those figures who aren't necessarily in political power. You know, usually there was a court history in the past, for example. So histories were told by kings and queens and um, historians were employed by governments. And so they would have the government's take on history. However, there's, there's more of an interest now in the common man in the past. There's more of an interest in those who, who weren't necessarily able to write grand histories, but they still might have written letters to their families or they might have somehow recorded their daily activities. And so that, there, there are moves in the historical discipline, I think, to counteract what you've described. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well because especially now society is a lot more uh, individually empowering. So every individual has their own freedom, their own rights. And so almost what it has done as well is the minorities that have been neglected previously in history almost now uh, have less to be accountable to than those that have recorded history. And so there's also a discussion to be had there about how does history... Well, how does history hold people accountable? I'm accountable to certain motivations that have been put on me, well, that have been enacted on the past by my ancestors, whereas uh, other people may not. Yeah, minorities, the groups of minorities might not have had these things recorded. And so for them, it can almost act as well like this is the first time this has happened for you. You haven't made this mistake yet. And so you're allowed to do this because we know we've done it, but you haven't done it, or at least we don't know you've done it. So how... I guess, yeah, I mean, I don't really have a question from that, but I don't know if you want to chime in on anything there in the way that history does almost act as like a, a tallying sheet as well for you, these are the wrongs that you have done and, and as your, your identity comes from this history, then you are also accountable for these problems. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's a wrong approach to have. I'm just noting that it's, it's the approach that seems to have actually become evident. But I'll, I'll get on to another question because like, that might be a bit hard to yeah, discuss. Yeah, I feel, I feel like I'd need to unpack that with you yeah. for a bit of, um, so for a while. I guess actually I want to move now to talking about modern history and mm. the world today. And so the question I've got is, 
In an age of clickbait and a plethora of supported and unsupported claims, can history keep up with the particulars of the modern world? And so what I'm really asking now is, have we got an over-stimulus of perspectives to now be able to write accurate history? Because it's almost like it's too much for the historian to look at even one news event. You've got thousands of articles on it with people saying different things. People are making up stuff. Other people aren't. And so it becomes really hard to actually trust your sources. I think that's um, that's going to be a real problem for historians in the future because this is really a phenomenon of the last 15 years, 20 years max, I would have thought, this massive explosion of sources and perspectives that are available on a particular event or a particular issue. The internet's really a big part of that. In one sense, it's good for history because it'll provide the historians in the future with a real with heaps of data. But they'll still, I think, they'll still remain. Except, they'll probably remain accepted orthodox sources that historians will continue to return to, particular kinds of accounts. Perhaps um, accounts from journalists might remain remain reliable. They might be considered as more reliable than an account on some blog somewhere that has no credi- no particular credibility. The thing that we don't know, and it's the same with any kind of history, we don't know whether the blog might actually have the more accurate account as compared to the journalist. That's the problem that the historian has to deal with all the time anyway. But I think that there, I think that it will be a problem. But maybe what maybe what will be maybe what will be interesting is that the historian will have to deal with uh, these different kinds of sources rather than the fact that there are so many. That that that's not a bad problem. That's kind of a helpful problem to have. Generally speaking, I think it's the types of sources that will be the issue. And this sort of open source world that we live in where everyone can have their say publicly is going to be a real challenge because often it's not obvious who's right. But that's that's the, being a historian is partly like being a detective. You know, trying to unpick all of the, the, the this you're trying to unpick this tapestry of this event and trying to work out what really happened. And I think that it'll be able to keep up with the particulars of the modern world. I think that historians will continue to refine their practice to suit to suit the kind of sources that they deal with. That, that's a very uh, optimistic response. There's, there's a huge debate in public opinion at the moment just, re- revol- res- just revolving this whole um, fake news debacle and people and the general and the, the approach that individuals have and the approach that I have is just, oh, well, if you don't believe it, then it doesn't matter, right? But it's actually revealed that, you know, what we are allowing to be supported, so it could be, large news corporations that are the ones telling the fake news and you've got individual small groups that aren't and you may read it and go, oh, yeah, that's the true story there. But unless you support that, mm. in a 100 years when people are trying to find out what really happened and they've got a 1,000 sources to go with, mm. they're going to go with the ones that have been proven to be more reliable on more cases. That's right. And the ones that have had the general backing because otherwise, how do they know what's really happened? It's just what everyone publicly agrees has happened. So it's almost like the war for today is... Well, the debate around fake news today is really a war for what history will be believed 100 years in the future. It's, a, it's an interesting perspective to kind of take on, oh, you need to realise that what, whatever's happening now is being going to be remembered. And so what are people going to remember? Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, a really good point. The uh, yeah, things that are happening now will be remembered. Everything's being recorded. In fact, more things are being recorded than ever. And so there will be huge proliferation of potential sources for historians and for people who are trying to retell things that have happened in the past. I mean, as you say, it is a 
history is history is a, a bit of a battleground because as someone said who I can't remember who it was, he who controls the past can control the present and the future because what you say about the past can really affect how you how you live today. It, it's it's going to be a problem, but the, there's also some positives to do um, that, that come out of the proliferation, I think. I wanted to talk about the kind of history that we consume today. So, I mean, all history books are written to help support a particular ideology to help reinforce the identity of, of the, the country or the government that it's within. Not to say that it's necessarily brainwashing, but it is no. deciding what you study does impact what people identify with and stuff. And so I think the question, there's a, there's a few questions that I want to get on with this, but I think what are the important things that we should be studying historically now for the individual? If you needed to know some very important things, well, if you wanted to really have a, a proper identity and you wanted to know exactly what you should have studied, my studying of the Industrial Revolution in grade nine is probably the thing I remember the most. And I don't know why, and I don't think it was very important for me to have studied because I don't care about what was it the in the rivers they used to drop out water and then raise up the water level so the boat would be able to come up and then mm-hmm. they'd do it over and over again. And it was, yeah. you know, it's interesting. It shows that it's pretty in- ingenious. But why does that matter to the identity? Like if, if the purpose of history in school is really informing the cultural identity, which it seems like it should be at the more general level anyway, what should we be really looking to in terms of that kind of study? Okay, well, let, let's take... Uh... Let's take a typical Australian as an example, which is difficult to pin down because we're such a multicultural society. We all have different backgrounds and some of us, a lot of us come from different parts of the world. If I was, um, if I'm speaking to my own children, for example, and, and, you know, our children are now starting to go to school, this is a live question for us. We want to uh, the the kind of history that that we want to tell our children revolves around probably two big things. Well, let's say three. One is their local identity as uh, an Australian because that's where they live, and so I want my children to understand the place they live, the people they live with. I want them to understand things like Australian political history and why we have the political institutions that we have. Uh, I want them to understand the fraught relationship between Indigenous Australia and White Australia and why those things are difficult and also the relationship between Australia and the great sort of immigrations that occurred after World War II and then during the 70s, 80s and 90s, which has created this really complex multicultural society that we live in. So that impact, that's sort of a, I guess, a Australia-centric approach to history. But then go out another step. Fundamentally, Australia is uh, a British culture if you look at our political institutions and our history. And so understanding the history of Britain and of Europe and the West more generally, I think is, a, is an important thing for people to, to grasp if they live in Australia. And then finally, the thing I'm interested in teaching my children, and I'm, and I'm a, a Christian, and so I want my children to identify with the church and with Christians from the past. And so I want them to read church history. I want them to read about the history of Christianity. This is a sort of simplistic way of putting it, but I want them to know who their teammates are. I want them to go, yeah, you know, like I love Augustine and I love Tertullian and I love, uh, we, we, we love learning about Charlemagne and about the, the Christian church in the medieval period and so on and the Reformation and so forth. And so I want them to learn all of those things so they can also understand their identity as 
as Christians too. So I guess there are three streams. You've kind of got your local national identity, uh, your broader kind of civilizational identity, and then in the, if you're religious, I think your religious identity is also really tied to a history. And so there are three ways of thinking about how you might think about studying history, but it's really difficult to without knowing the particulars of the particular person, you know, it's difficult to advise them, but that'll be a way of framing the problem and approaching that problem. Yeah, the answer is pretty much, you know, what what history, what identities do we need to be understood by everyone? And to understand those, those are the histories that we need to teach. And I think, yeah, the Australian government one's an important one. Mm. I would much prefer to have learnt about the creation of the two parties, which... I'm amazed that I didn't, or if I did, I did not pay attention, which is a shame on my part, but I would have been much better to learn about that than about the river system and the ingenuity of the Industrial Revolution. Not that that's not important, but in terms of priorities, I'm now a voting citizen, and what do I have to go off in terms of understanding the history of Mm. these parties? Well, Mm. I only really have what I can get my hands on now, which Mm. is as a plethora of unsupported and supported claims. Mm. So I think education in that sense... Man, that would have been helpful. Yeah, that's just a lamenting. It's also <laughs> a little bit of a rant against the <laughs> political education. Yeah, but but it's almost like as I'm not even saying I need this ideology taught. I'm just just teach me so I know what at least know where to look in the history. I'm, you're not even informing my identity, and that's I think a big part of uh, history is if you can give it impartially then it's not actually attributing judgments it's just allowing someone to make judgments on it uh which i think a lot of the time when we look at history in high schools it's kind of like oh what are they trying to brainwash them to think or no it's just if you can give them a good impartial view of history then they at least are able to be able to make judgments themselves yeah yeah uh the question i've got then next following is obviously people consume history and history books are sold um i don't know which ones exactly but the one i always see and that I see everywhere, it's on every QBD and Dimmix, always on their bestsellers wall, one of the ones by Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, yeah, it's like the Sapiens was the one that comes to my mind. Mm-hmm. I see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's a historical text. I, I mean, I haven't read I don't know what it's claiming. But in terms of general consumable history... Is that the kind of stuff people should be looking to in terms of understanding themselves? I, I haven't read Harari's books myself, so I can't. I guess I can't speak to that particular uh, volume. However, I'm not convinced that Harari's general approach is helpful. It's very broad and big brush. It takes a it takes a big history approach. It's called big history, and so big history tends to take these massive. Um, Massive swathes of time. He starts with sort of conjectural prehistor- prehistorical origins. And then he's even got a book called Homo Deus, which is actually a history of tomorrow. It's a history of the future. So he's trying to predict what's going to happen. So it's not even really history, is it? It's something else entirely. But um, I, I, I think, though, I mean, I think, I think big history stuff can be helpful, but it's only helpful to a certain extent because really what we need to, I feel like really what we should be consuming at a popular level at least are things that we actually experientially relate to. So Brief History of Humankind, a Sapiens, but a Brief History of Humankind by Harari could be helpful because you might relate to it. But I think reading books about, reading history books about the past, which, well, there, there, are, two, there are two ways of approaching it. One is that you read history books about the past, which are just interesting to you. So some people are obsessed with World War II history 
there are lots of popular books about World War II history. And there are lots of books about, sorry, for example, the Anzac myth uh, and Australia's participation in World War I and World War II. And they're all important and interesting and valuable, I think, for Australians to read, For just for example. Um, but then I think there are also books that um, we might say, okay, what are, you, might, you might think, okay, what are some key problems in the past that I should read up on? To take a, a big problem from the 20th century, why did Hitler rise to power and why did World War II happen? So you might read William Shirer's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Well, there's a new book by uh, Tim Bouverie about, we're called Appeasing Hitler, and that's just about the road to war in Europe in the 30s. And, and so... How, how did this happen? Because that's often a question, like, how did this happen? Why did this happen? And you might do that at a, a more local level, like we might want to understand why was Gough Whitlam sacked by the Governor-General? And there's lots of history around that. So, you know, you can, you can read about particular problems, but then the other thing we should do is not shy away from things that seem really odd to us. So I think that the... And Rowan Williams has written about this, who's the former Archbishop of Canterbury, the strangeness of the past. I mean, things are really... The past is interesting because it's weird. It's different to us. People thought weird things and did weird things, and we find that hard to understand. And so you might think, okay, what what kind of weird practices and ideas am I interested in from the past? So I've been really intrigued, for example, as a historian of political thought by the, by the, uh, the close connection between church and state in the past. That doesn't exist in Australia. It doesn't exist mostly in the West, generally speaking. So why did people believe that in the past? And so I've read lots about that particular historical idea and tried to understand why did people think that it seems really strange to me so there are different yeah you can you can you can and and that and then that can be really arresting it can sort of shake you out of your uh your i guess your 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 presentist bias you might go wow that that idea has really changed the way i think about the connection between church and state for example or if you read something about hitler well that's really changed the way that i think about leadership or the way that i think about how leaders can be a force for great evil and what things to, to I guess, to be concerned with in, in looking at particular leaders. So I suppose when you're considering what, what history you should invest your time in, um, I guess if you take my previous answer into account about what should form our identity, you can also just think along the lines of well, what problems interest me? So what, what questions do I have? And they don't have to be really pertinent to your life now they can be really strange but they can still affect you as you study them in a positive way it almost seems like such a good wrapping up sentiment but it's it's a shame because i don't really want to wrap up i'm just enjoying this conversation too much um so i might we can try take uh see how far we can take that kind of thought of modern history and stuff sure um i guess another question i've got in terms of the studying of history is and you kind of talked about it a little bit but you were, you were talking about Long history, is that what it was Big history. Big history in terms of it takes a lot of broad strokes. And so mm-hmm. those broad strokes presume a lot of things about humanity mm-hmm. that might not be um, true across the board. So I guess in terms of studying history, how far back should, like, just a, like me, how far back should I look in history when trying to get a, a good perspective for what I'm looking at? Like if I'm wondering about an ethical issue, should I be going back to 2000 years ago like how far back is like but like is there any is there any cutoff point at all i don't think there is a cutoff point because i think that people have thought wise thoughts and written down wise things all across history there hasn't i i completely reject the idea that because something was thought and written 2000 years ago or 5000 years ago that it's irrelevant and that those people are stupider than us 
I reject that idea entirely. Uh, it only takes 15 minutes of reading uh, Plato's Republic to realize that that is not really a very sensible approach to choosing what you will and will not consult. I think there are some questions, though, which have arisen more recently. And so, for example, one might be to do with technology. Now, people have always wrestled with the problem of technology because as soon as someone created fire or they shaped a tool out of a piece of wood from a tree branch, that's technology and they have to wrestle with that problem. But technology is a really it's, – it's a heightened ethical issue for us today. And recent the recent centuries, particularly say the last two centuries, have been – and quite, quite understandably with the Industrial Revolution and then the IT revolution that's sort of occurred in the last 30 years, the last two centuries have really been the site of deep reflection on those that problem – more so than the previous centuries. In order to answer particular ethical questions or get at particular problems, you still have to answer the fundamental problems about human nature. What is a human? What is he made for? What's his purpose? How do we, how do we ascertain those questions? And those, and those questions have been answered across history. So, yeah, the particularities, sure, you might only go back so far, and I think that's legitimate. But at the end of the day, as I said, human nature is a consistent factor across history, and so anything that comes back to the question of human nature you can go all the way back as far as you like and you can still get real value from reading those texts before i let you go i wanted to bring up we kind of have discussed a little bit i mean you said you were reading the gulag archipelago by solzhenitsyn i mean i have heard of that only because i'm a, a peterson fan so and he mentions it quite a bit but he says something very interesting which is he gets quite frustrated at people that look back on soviet russia or they look at the Nazis and they go, oh man, how could people have done this? How could they have been so wrong? How could they have allowed themselves to do that? And, you know, he, he discusses that, like, when looking at history, well, what he says is he says, you've got to be able to confront the monster within, right? The fact mm-hmm. that, well, if these are humans and they've done this and you're a human and you've got to make the logical conclusion that there's something in the both of you that has the ability to do that. And so the question really shouldn't, be almost dismissively how could they do that but more you look at it you go okay how how could they have done that how did mm-hmm. they get to a point where this was possible mm-hmm. because it's not that they couldn't have done it it's that i could do it and how could they be moved in a way that they want to do it how could i be moved in a way that i want to do it i mean people yeah. will look back on us in i don't know how long it'll take for things that we're doing wrong to be revealed as wrong and people will look at us and go how could they do that mm-hmm. and so i mean yeah i that's just that's just another rant but have you got anything you want to add to that fact kind of like that that approach to history seems not to actually be interacting with it or yeah so i reading things about the past really can and again this comes back to the consistency of human nature we are confronted what we are really we're really we're really looking in some sense at a mirror at ourselves and we are confronted with how we might be somehow implicated in this not be, not 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 literally you and i can't be implicated in the the practices of communist russia that's not what i mean but humans are implicated in a general sense because when you look back at the past and you think and i think jordan peterson's right and i think he is very influenced by solzhenitsyn the part of um the gulag archipelago i've just been reading actually uh, gets at this and he he, uh, Solzhenitsyn says, I'm not quoting here, but this is just a general sense of what he says. You look at us, who, those of us who have been in the camps and we, we betrayed our, our friends and our family in order to have a reduced sentence. And you look at us and you think, how could you have done that? And then he says um, something similar about 
the guards and the interrogators. And he says he looks, people will look at the guards and the interrogators and think, oh, I would never have done that. I would never have decided to join them and, and do it. And he, he recalls a moment when he was at university where he was asked to join the NKVD and he would have basically become one of those interrogators if he'd done that. And he said no. And he said, but it wasn't because my motives were pure or because I felt like I couldn't participate in such an evil regime. He says, in fact, it's not that there's evil out there and that we're looking at it. He says, that, and then this is his famous line, the line between good and evil runs straight through the human heart and history really confronts us with that and even though we look back and we think yeah history is really strange and those people did those strange things or those evil things and i would never do that it's not true it's not true that we wouldn't do it i think that um when we look at history we are confronted with the capacity for human nature to do both remarkable good and remarkable evil and that capability is inside of us and so there's no question that history confronts us with that reality also history it mirrors it reflects what we have as you were saying it it reflects the potential that we have inside us to act a certain way and so if you see the great goods or the great evils that have been done in history it doesn't it's actually not that alien as you like it is alien but it's if it is dealing with human nature then it's still core inside us and so it i mean sure there's different contexts but almost it's reassuring and frightening because you realize both of these ends of the pendulum can swing that far again that's right i've got one last question and that is if you had two book recommendations uh one that could just be general history or a philosophical approach to history that people should read what would that be and then if you just have a general book recommendation nothing to do with the conversation what would that be yeah so if I, if I was to give one general recommendation about, you know, these, some of these philosophical questions around history and reading history and understanding history and what history is, I would recommend, and see, this is not necessarily my favorite book or even the best book on this question, but I think because it's not too long and it's definitely thought-provoking and probing on these, these points, I would recommend Rowan Williams' book, Why Study the Past?, because it pertains to church history particularly, but really the uh, overall questions that it's asking are really about why does history matter? How should we understand history and what are the good what are the good uses of history, I suppose, or how can we harness history for good? So I recommend Rowan Williams' Why Study the Past? As a general recommendation, wow, I mean, that's a, that's a hard question. I, I recently read a book by um, Peter Gay called Weimar Culture. And it was, again, this might be in a way a good, a good history book. Uh, I'm not actually a specialist of Weimar Germany by any stretch of the imagination. And yet it was one of the best history books I've ever read. That's not a topic I'm not inherently interested in or an expert on. And it was sensational. So I'd recommend that. Um, but I'm going to cheat and recommend another book. If I was to recommend a, and I'm going to be boring because it's a C.S. Lewis book and probably everyone's recommending C.S. Lewis books. But if I was to recommend, I guess, a, a fiction book, I would recommend That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis because I think as people read that, they'll be struck by how prescient and uh, prophetic Lewis's book is. And so what was that first? Uh, the, the germ- not the, the first of your general recommendation. Peter Gay, okay. Weimar Culture. Yeah, and that's actually about... That's about the about Weimar Germany and sort of and the role of culture in the twenties and early thirties in Germany and the and the move toward Nazism in nineteen thirty three. Fascinating, like just remarkably fascinating. I'm right, okay. kind of stunned by how interesting it was, actually. Yeah, no, that's great. That's what you want. You want history that you can't put down. <laughs> that's it. 
I would like to thank the Millis Institute for sponsoring this episode. Millis is the School of Liberal Arts based at Christian Heritage College in Brisbane. They aim to get students participating in the great dialogue of humanity that is the great books. If you were interested by anything you just heard, then from Dr. Simon Kennedy, then please go to their Facebook page at the Millis Institute or find them on Google.